0: In this talk, I'll discuss how activating mutations in the ATP-sensitive potassium channel give rise to neonatal diabetes, diabetes within the first six months of life. And my aim is to show you how understanding how the ion channel works has led to a new therapy for patients with neonatal diabetes, and also how understanding the disease itself has told us something about the functional roles of the ATP-sensitive potassium channel. So, ATP-sensitive potassium channels are really important because they couple the metabolism of the cell to its electrical activity and insulin secretion. When blood sugar levels are low, the metabolism of the cell is low. And the KATP channels are therefore open. And potassium efflux through the channel generates a negative membrane potential that holds the voltage-gated calcium channel shut, as you can see here. And because calcium entry is required for insulin secretion, this means that no insulin is released. However, when your blood sugar level rises, then glucose is taken up and metabolized by the pancreatic beta cell, leading to closing of the KATP channels. And the consequence of this is a membrane depolarization that opens the voltage gated calcium channels and thereby stimulates insulin secretion. So when the KATP channels are open, no insulin is released, and when the KADP channels are shut, insulin stimulation insulin is secreted. The mechanism by which metabolism regulates the activity of the KATP channel is through changes in the intracellular concentrations of adenine nucleotides, because ATP inhibits a channel and magnesium ADP stimulates channel activity. And of course, when metabolism is low, ATP levels are low, so the channel is open. And when metabolism is elevated, because of elevated blood glucose levels, then ATP levels are higher and the channel is inhibited. We know that the k channel is a very complex molecule. It's an octamer formed from four KIR 6.2 subunits and four SUR1 subunits, regulatory subunits at least in the pancreatic beta cell. The KIR 6.2 subunit uh, makes the potassium-selective tetrameric pore. And this is a member of the inwardly rectifying uh, potassium channel family. However, um, despite its name, it's only a very weak inward rectifier. And it associates um, in a one-to-one fashion with the sulfonylurea receptor, SUR1, which is so-called because it binds drugs known as sulfonylureas. And this is a very much larger protein. As you can see, it's got 17 transmembrane domains arranged in three different groups. And it's got two very large cytosolic domains, which come together in a head-to-tail fashion to form two nucleotide binding sites. And, And we know that both of these subunits are required... For nucleotide regulation of the channel. So, ATP inhibits the channel by binding to KIR 6.2 um, in a reaction that doesn't require magnesium. And magnesium nucleotides interact with these nucleotide binding domains of the sulfonylurea receptor. And because there are two nucleotide binding domains per sulfonylurea receptor and four sulfonylurea receptors per channel, that means there are eight stimulatory sites in total and four inhibitory sites. And channel activity is therefore going to be determined by the balance between these activation and inhibition events, at least in the, in the intact cell. Very recently, the uh, structure of the KATP channel has been solved at around six angstroms resolution um, by two separate groups shown down here. Um, and this is a, a, an open closed model um, produced by Phil Stansfeld in the Department of Biochemistry in Oxford. And uh, you can see it's an incredibly beautiful structure, very exciting. Um, and the ks 6.2 tetramers in the center, surrounded by the four sulfonylurea receptors. And I... we've removed uh, the front sulfonylurea receptor so that it's easier to see what's going on in the center. And you can also see this um, in top view with the KR6.2 subunits in the center here. Um, And here, this is um, the first part of the sulfonylurea receptor, and the rest of the sulfonylurea receptor subunit is down here. And you can even see the the pore in the center, through which the ions will move. So, um, we're looking forward to uh, ever-increased resolution of these structures. And now you can see it... uh, how it is predicted to move when the channel opens and closes. Now, in neonatal diabetes, there are... 50% of cases are caused by mutations in either Keir 6.2 or SUR one And these are activating mutations. And what happens is they render the channel insensitive to ATP. And the consequence of that is, despite an increase in the blood glucose concentration and elevation of intracellular ATP, the ATP is unable to bind to the channel uh, fully and close it. And therefore, the membrane remains hyperpolarized, calcium entry uh, is switched off, and insulin secretion does not occur. And so the patient develops neonatal diabetes, as I explained in my my first talk. And the mutations that that cause neonatal diabetes are found all over the channel, as you can just see here. So, many of them are found in the Kir 6.2 subunit, but there are also very many in SUR1. And I'm just going to illustrate how these mutations work by showing you what happens um, with mutations in Kir 6.2. And that's shown on this slide in a little model also produced by uh, Phil Stansfeld. And uh, this... so, this is just the Kir 6.2 subunit. The purple uh, spheres are the potassium ions showing their pathway through the pore. The blue here is ATP binding to the molecule. Um, So that's the ATP binding site. And everything in red is uh, a residue that is mutated in neonatal diabetes. And what you'll notice is that all of these um, seem to lie in the lower part of the channel, um, in regions which are associated with its opening and closing or gating, or in the region that is associated with ATP binding. So, the big question, of course, is how do these mutations cause neonatal diabetes? And again, I'm going to focus on Keir 6.2. This was a Christmas card we produced um, showing uh, two of the mutations. So, to study the molecular mechanism of these mutations, what we've done is to express the channel in Xenopus oocytes, which act as little biochemical factories, and they produce the mutant channels insert them into the plasma membrane, where we can then patch clamp them. And we use ec- inside-out membrane patches, as shown over here on the left, um, and we apply ATP to the intracellular membrane surface. And in the box on the right, you see the effect of ATP on currents generated by voltage ramps um, and in response to 1 millimolar ATP which completely inhibits the wild-type channel. But in channels which have the mutation R50p, you can see that one millimolar um, ATP has no effect at all. So we can then go ahead and we can plot the um, current level in the uh, presence of ATP as a function of that in its absence. And that's shown on the next slide. And you'll see the dose-response curve for the wild-type channel um, and also the dose-response curve for... A heterozygous R50P mutation. Now, R50 lies right within the ATP binding site, the putative ATP binding site of the channel, and all patients with this mutation, indeed almost all patients who have mutations in KIR 6.2, are heterozygous. So it's very important that we look at the heterozygous state, which we've simulated by co injecting the oocytes with wild type SUR1 and a one to one mixture of mutant KIR 6.2 and wild-type, Keir like 6.2. So, we will have um, a similar... A, a similar as to, one, to what one expects in the patient. And what you'll notice is that there is a big increase in current at physiological levels of ATP, indicated by this blue bar, um, in, the muta- in the mutant channel. And this mutation here, R50P, causes... Den syndrome. So, it causes neonatal diabetes with neurological complications. If we look at another mutation, which is less severe and causes less of an increase in the current uh, at physiological ATP concentrations, as you see here, this mutation is associated with only neonatal diabetes and with no neurological complications at all. So, this tells us that there is a relationship between the severity of the mutation and the um, severity of the disease phenotype. And in fact, there's a spectrum of disease severity shown here. As ATP sensitivity is de- decreased, so the severity of the disease increases. And at the one end, where the most severe mutations with the greatest reduction in ATP inhibition can be seen, um, the phenotype is full-dense syndrome, so that's shown here. This is um, neuro neurological complications um, and epilepsy associated with diabetes. IDEND, the next one in this is um, neonatal diabetes together with uh, muscle weakness, permanent neonatal diabetes, transient neonatal diabetes, maturity onset diabetes of the young, and right at the very end there is a mutation that causes a very small change in ATP sensitivity, uh, almost unmeasurable, And that is associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. And a significant number of the Caucasian population carry this uh, gene variant. It's very interesting that there is one mutation that we have found that produces homozygous uh, diabetes. So, in this case, um, both... both, both alleles must be mutant in order for the patient to have the disease. And what I'm showing you here is that very small changes in ATP sensitivity can have very large effects. So, on the right, in blue, green and red, you see the mean IC50, the mean half... uh, the the mean concentration at which inhibition by ATP is half-maximal. And we've taken all the mutations here and just taken their mean values. Then, in black, you see half-maximal inhibition, the IC50, for the wild-type channel, right over on the far left. And then the two to uh, look at are the cyan and the magenta. So, the parents of this child, who each carry one copy of the mutant gene, are shown in cyan. They have a slightly elevated uh, IC50. And they are unaffected. Whereas the child who show, who has the uh, magenta i c fifty has neonatal diabetes diabetes from birth, and you can see that the change is extremely tiny so so what this means is very small changes in in ATP sensitivity can have very large effects on the patient's phenotype and here on the f- uh, uh, over here, if I can stretch is um the homozygous e twenty three variant, which predisposes to diabetes in later life. So this suggests that the parents of this child, shown here in cyan, may in fact develop diabetes later in life, especially if they become obese. Um, But as they're very young at the moment, uh, we don't know whether that's going to happen. So why do small changes have such large effects? Um, Well, the reason is shown here. And it's... what I've done is to plot the KATP conductance against the membrane potential of a pancreatic beta cell. And what you'll notice is there's an extremely steep uh, relationship between the two. And electrical activity, which is what is required in order to stimulate insulin secretion, is shown um, by this pink bar. And very tiny changes here can produce marked changes in uh, membrane potential and electrical activity. And so this is why, and this this occurs because the input resistance of the pancreatic beta cell is extremely high when most of the KADB channels are shut. And from Ohm's law, we know that V equals IR. In other words, that if you have a high resistance, um, uh, you only need a tiny current to produce a change in voltage. So the really interesting thing about these experiments was that they have implications for therapy. Initially, before the um, mutations were discovered, it was thought that neonatal diabetes was a rare form of type 1 diabetes. And in type 1 diabetes, as I've already told you, uh, the pancreatic beta cells are destroyed by an autoimmune attack and patients require insulin all their lives. Consequently, patients with neonatal diabetes were treated with insulin, daily injections, and multiple blood glucose tests a day which isn't so easy in, in a very young baby. And uh, their blood glucose was also not always well controlled. And as you can see here um, in this drawing by a nine-year-old boy, uh, the patients don't always feel too happy about having to inject insulin. Uh, he depicts himself as a rabbit uh, in a cage um, and with, with an insulin syringe in his paw. And in fact, actually, as these young lads say, life with diabetes is no easy feat because it requires continuous monitoring of the blood glucose and calculations to adjust the amount of insulin that you take according to what you happen to be doing at the time. But of course, now now we know um, before drug therapy the patients were treated with insulin. But we know that if their beta cells are still present, of course, um, then their KADB channels will be open. And they will simply be... the pancreatic beta cells will simply be switched off and not releasing insulin. So if we could shut them with a drug that bypasses the metabolic stages, then it might be possible to stimulate insulin secretion. And indeed, there was exactly such a drug that had been known for more than 50 years and was used to treat patients with type 2 diabetes. And that's a drug known as sulfonylureas, or... Glybenchlamide is one of the specific types of these drugs, which binds directly to the KATP channel and causes it to close independent of metabolism. So it seemed a pretty fair bet that this would actually um, be able to be used in patients with neonatal diabetes, provided, of course, that they still had their pancreatic beta cells, which wasn't at all clear at the time because it was thought that high blood sugar might actually destroy one's beta cells in diabetes. So my wonderful colleague, Andrew Hattersley decided to uh, give this a a go. And uh, a a wonderful woman in the Netherlands agreed to be the first patient. And this is actually taken from a different paper, um, but it shows what happens during transfer to, to sulfonylurea therapy. So you'll see the insulin dose that the patient is getting in orange and the sulfonylurea dose in red and the blood sugar level in blue. And as the insulin dose, um, as the sulfonylurea dose is increased, shown here, um, the insulin dose can be reduced until finally the patient has, is taking no insulin at all and is completely controlled um, by sulfonylureas. And the blood sugar level, as you've noticed, has actually slightly reduced. And this can also be seen in this uh, plot from my colleague Andrew Hattersley and Ewan Pearson, um, in which they show that the HbA1c level, which is an index of the average blood glucose concentration during the preceding four weeks or so, um, actually falls when the patient transfers from insulin to sulfonylurea therapy, um, which was really quite surprising to everybody. And indeed, you will notice that now many patients, um, their their HbA1c enters the normal range, which means that their risk of diabetic complications is considerably less. And in this um, recording, taken from the work of Berstapp and Mamoul, you can see real-time blood glucose monitoring during transfer from insulin to glibenklamide. And you'll notice that there are... prior to um, glibenchlamide, the sulfonylurea, there are many fluctuations in the blood glucose concentration, and it's much higher than the uh, normal level, which is indicated here in blue. But following glibenchlamide transfer, which you see here, um, then the blood glucose fluctuations are very much less... And and they're also, the blood sugar level is also lower. And now more than 90% of patients um, with neonatal diabetes have transferred to drug therapy. And both their clinical condition and quality of life improve. In fact, in some cases, the patients say it's transformed their lives. And in a way, it's also transformed my life too. Because as a scientist, you never, ever expect that the the work you do, um, which you do entirely for... um, the excitement of trying to figure out how something works. You never expect that in your lifetime it will translate into uh, therapy. And it's an enormous privilege um, when it actually does. So, interestingly, if we look at the mutant channels and how they are affected by sulfonylureas, uh, here you see, for many different mutations along the bottom, the percentage of block by the sulfonylurea tolbutamide. On the very far left, you see block of the wild-type channel, which is almost 100%. And then here, you see the block by... um, where all patients can transfer to sulfonylureas, where some patients transfer and others don't, and where no patients transfer. Now, we know that these patients here, who are indicated in black, these... um, these are... the ion channels that they have, the mutation... Prevents the sulfonylurea inhibiting the channel, but this is very fascinating. Where some respond to drug therapy and others don't, and the question is why don't they respond? Um, and it turns out that this is related to the duration of their diabetes. And in this plot, what you see is the age at tra- at which transfer uh, occurred, um, and on the uh, and so here in red are those patients who are unsuccessful in transferring, and in white those who transferred successfully. And for young patients less than the age of 2, 97% um, are able to transfer, 100% between the age of 2 and 9, but over the age of 18 only about uh, 65% respond. So, this is very interesting. Why is this the case? And maybe this can help us understand something about the effects of chronic hyperglycemia. The first thing we know is that The beta cells do remain functional in these patients, even after years of diabetes. So so they're clearly there. But the fact that the older patients find it harder to transfer and that some fail to do so suggests that maybe the high blood sugar level may adversely affect the pancreatic beta cells. And this may, of course, also occur in type 2 diabetes. And other evidence in favor of this idea is that the sulfonylurea dose decreases with time in many patients. And that also suggests that the beta cell function may recover when glycemia, you know, the blood sugar level, is better controlled. So to try to understand what's going on, we made a mouse model of neonatal diabetes uh, using the cre lox system. And basically what this allows us to do is to, um, induce, uh, the m- is to induce diabetes by simply injecting tamoxifen. Um, So, what we've done is we have taken a mutation that causes neonatal diabetes in humans, and we have put that into a mouse and expressed it specifically in the pancreatic beta cells um, and under the control of um, a promoter that is turned on by uh, tamoxifen. And what you'll see here is that when we turn on the mutant gene, the blood sugar level goes from this resting level down here of around 5 millimolar um, up to around 20 to 25 millimolar, really within a day or so. And then the animal um, has diabetes, but we can reverse the diabetes by treating them with sul- the sulfonylurea glipizide, just uh, as in the patients. And just as in the patients higher doses are needed to control the blood sugar after four weeks of diabetes than if we try to control it after two days of diabetes. So, what's going on with the beta cells during this um, period of diabetes? Well, that's shown here. So, on the left, you see uh, pancreatic islets stained for insulin, and um, on the... on the right, uh, here, the staining for glucagon, which stains the pancreatic alpha cells. And you'll notice that in the control islets, in the mouse, uh, um, the uh, insulin staining cells, the pancreatic beta cells, are all um, in the core of the islet, um, with the uh, glucagon-secreting alpha cells as a mantle around them. But after four weeks of diabetes, um, all of the... most of the insulin staining has disappeared. And this can also be seen here, in this graph of insulin content, uh, showing a sort of 75% reduction in um, insulin content in... uh, after four weeks of diabetes. So, the next question is, is this because the beta cells are dying off, or is it because they're actually just losing their insulin granules? And to try to address that question, we have to look at electron microscopy. And what you see here is degranulation. So, on the left, you see a control mouse islet. On the right, you see uh, 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 an islet in a mouse that's had diabetes for four weeks. Um, The nucleus is indicated. And you can see, I I hope, that there are many, many granules here in the control. And uh, after four weeks of diabetes, um, most of these insulin granules have disappeared. So, one of the problems is that the insulin granules, the insulin content and insulin gene expression, is turned down in response to high blood sugar. And this is also seen in patients with type 2 diabetes. So, on the left, um, in this paper by Cynthia et al., you see a control um, islet from a human, and on the right, one in a patient who has type 2 diabetes. And they have plotted here the percent of degranulated cells, which, as you can see, also rises um, in diabetes. So, this suggests that the loss of insulin staining in diabetes doesn't necessarily mean loss of pancreatic beta cells. They may not actually be dying. Um, they may be there, but what's happened is they have lost their insulin granules. And this also suggests that the beta cell mass in type 2 diabetic islets may actually have been underestimated. There may be more beta cells there than originally thought. So, what those of few What you may have noticed, if you've been paying attention, is that the um, the diabetic islets seem to be full, not only uh, of this kind of electrolucent material. And we had a, a long time trying to figure out what this was, but it eventually, it turned out that this was actually glycogen, which washes out of cells when they're subject to normal fixation. But if you use a different fixation, specifically for glycogen, then you can see all the glycogen particles here. So, not only are the islets losing their... the pancreatic beta cells losing their um, insulin granules, they're also gaining a lot of glycogen. And the question is, why are they doing that? That suggests that metabolism is affected. And indeed, it appears from subsequent studies that what happens in response to chronic like chronic hyperglycemia is that um, mitochondrial metabolism is impaired, is reduced, and because... In pancreatic beta cells, lactate dehydrogenase and um, the lactate transporter are not present. The glucose that's pouring into the cell can't be metabolized to lactate. So, some of it goes into the pentose phosphate pathway, but most of it is stored as glycogen. And so, what this tells us then is that hypoglycemia does two things it reduces the insulin uh, content and it impairs glucose metabolism. And we can look at glucose metabolism by measuring the levels of ATP. And in pancreatic islets, what one normally sees in response to glucose is elevation of intracellular ATP. And you can see that here in the control islets over here. So, this is the ATP content at 2 millimolar glucose and at 20 millimolar glucose, which has gone up about double. But this doesn't happen in islets taken from diabetic animals this also indicates that metabolism is somehow or other impaired. And this can also be seen um, in islets from type 2 diabetic donors. Again, there's no change in ATP in the islets with type 2, uh, from, taken from people with type 2 diabetes. So, we can conclude that chronic hyperglycemia leads to a reduction in the number of insulin granules and that it impairs beta cell metabolism. And because ATP fails to be elevated... Um, what it will do is prevent k channel closure, at least in, you know, normal islets. And these two things will together contribute to the reduced insulin secretion in chronic hyperglycemia. So, this may explain why the older patients are less able to transfer to sulfonylurea therapy, because the islets have been impaired and they haven't actually been able to switch back yet. Um, and it may also um, occur in type 2 diabetes. So, we can think of it like this, that... Maybe um, if the k channel is slightly activated, or some other small occurs, or you become obese, the amount of insulin that you release is not sufficient any longer to maintain your blood glucose levels. And so, hyperglycemia occurs. And then, hyperglycemia by itself impairs beta cell metabolism and reduces insulin content, generating this kind of vicious cycle that eventually culminates in diabetes. So that's that's what we think might be going on, and I'd just like to thank the uh, people who've worked in my group uh, with me all over the years, those people whose work is featured in the particular experiments I've talked about, our wonderful collaborators in Exeter, who've um, told us about all the different mutations and invited us to work with them, and our marvellous colleagues in Oxford, Anne Clark, who did the electron microscopy, Um, Patrick Rosman, my collaborator of 35 years um, on uh, studying the uh, pancreatic beta cell, and Phil Stansfield, who did all the wonderful modeling which you've seen, and, of course, the patients and their clinicians. Thank you very much.